Hello, and welcome to the History of Japan podcast, episode 54, The Great Change. This week, I want to talk about an event that tends not to get discussed too much outside of expert circles on early Japanese history, but which, to my mind, did a lot to set the tone of Japanese government. Now, I should emphasize the phrase, to my mind, because the interpretation I'm about to give you is very different from the one you'd get from a historian of early Japan. Historians, you see, are, as a group, generally pretty good at pointing out differences between events, but we're not always that great at drawing parallels and continuities. That, however, is, to my mind, the far more interesting job. You see... Almost everyone with even passing familiarity with Japanese history has heard of the Meiji Restoration, those heady days of the latter 19th century when Japan's leaders reworked their nation from the ground up using a cultural model borrowed from the West, gripped with the conviction that anything less would result in the nation's destruction. They did whatever they felt was necessary to ensure Japan's security and survival. It makes for an absolutely fabulous story, but as with so many others we tell ourselves nowadays, it is basically a remake. You see, Japan had already gone through one total reworking of its society in response to an external threat, some 1,200 years before Commodore Perry ever set sail into Edo. This week, we're going to be talking about the legacy of that first mass reworking of Japanese culture. It goes by a few names, but is best known as the Taika, the Great Change. Before we do, however, we have to set the stage. Let's talk about what Japan looked like in the 600s CE. In the year 600, Japan had attained an impressive degree of unity. The Kingdom of Yamato, founded in the region of Japan that goes by that name, centered in modern Nara Prefecture, roughly, had been steadily expanding since the 200 CE, roughly contemporary with Himiko, though, as we've said, it's a little unclear whether Himiko was part of or opposed Yamato. By 600, Yamato controlled around two-thirds of what we now think of as Japan. Their control extended as far north as modern Tochigi and Nagano prefectures. Think of a line drawn across Honshu a bit north of Tokyo, and you'll get the idea and as far south as the top half of Kyushu. The total subjugation of that island would be complete a few years later. At the top of this newly ascendant kingdom was, in theory, Japan's imperial family. Leading that family in 600 was Empress Suiko, who, according to the traditional reckoning, is Japan's second empress, though the historicity of the first, Empress Jingu, is somewhat debated. However, Suiko's influence was very limited, she had been placed on the throne by the powerful Soga clan, led by their influential leader, Soga no Umako. In fact, she was the second ruler to be installed by the Soga. In 587, a civil war had broken out over the issue of succession to the imperial throne, with the Soga backing one claimant and their rivals, the Mononobe, backing another. Though the fight was ostensibly about the succession, it was in practice a conflict between the Soga and Mononobe for power. The role of the emperor was in this case purely incidental. The Soga won and installed their candidate on the throne as Emperor Sushun. They also, by the way, killed all the Mononobe they could get their hands on. 
As we've talked about, Japan has something of a history of splitting symbolic power from actual power, and this is really where that got started. Soga no Umako could have made himself emperor, to be sure, but he chose to rule from behind the throne instead. We've discussed some reasons why he chose to do that before, but to provide a quick recap, the first is political calculation. The gain of being the open ruler rather than the power behind the throne isn't really worth the risk that, as a result, people could turn more openly against the Soga clan. The second is an issue of legitimacy. The religious position of the Yamato dynasty as descendants of the sun goddess Amaterasu makes it hard to justify another family stepping into their role. The dissent issue ensures that in order for a new order to seem legitimate, the current emperor always had to be descended from the previous one in order to lay claim to that ancestry ending in Amaterasu. Sushun began his reign as a loyal supporter of the Soga clan, his benefactors, as well he should have been since Soga no Umako was his cousin. Sushun's mother was Umako's sister. However, over time he began to get somewhat uppity. He resented Soga control over his affairs, and wanted to reassert the power of the imperial family. All his bid for autonomy got him in the end was trouble. Soga no Umoko was not what you would call a sentimental man, and when word got out to him that Sushun resented his cousin's power, Umako decided to strike first. According to one story, Sushun proclaimed during a boar hunt something along the lines of, I wish the boar I was hunting was Umako and that did not go over very well. In 593, he sent an assassin after Emperor Sushun and bumped him off, replacing him with another cousin from the imperial family, Empress Suiko. The Soga, if you'll recall, secured their position originally by being power brokers between Japan and the Asian continent. However, in the late 6th century, a major change would alter the dynamic between Japan and the mainland, the Romance of the Three Kingdoms, one of the most famous novels in Chinese history, begins with the line, quote, It is a general truth of this world that anything long divided will surely unite, and anything long united will surely divide. In China, the latter process had very much been the dominant one for the previous four centuries. China had been a fragmentary state since the collapse of the Han Dynasty in the early 200s CE. For the entire period of Yamato's rise to power, aside from a brief span under the Western Jin Dynasty, from 280 to 316 CE, so a little under 40 years, China was fractured into various competing kingdoms. Now, however, the pendulum was swinging the other way. The land, long divided, was uniting. A brilliant official named Yang Jian seized control of one of the fragmented Chinese states in 580, and began asserting control over the land, until in 589 he gained total control and crowned himself Emperor Wen of the Sui dynasty. The Sui would be short-lived. Wen's grandson would be killed in a civil war. That war, however, did not result in the refragmentation of China. Instead, a cousin of the last Sui emperor seized control and declared himself Tang Gaozu, Emperor of the new Tang dynasty the Tang would rule China for the next 300 years, and are generally considered to be one of the greatest of China's imperial dynasties. So why was this new unified China a potential threat to Japan? Well, the rise of the Sui and Tang presented the potential of Chinese encroachment into Japan, for a couple of reasons. First, both the Sui and Tang were very expansionist. 
Indeed, the sway actually collapsed in part because the regime bankrupted itself trying, unsuccessfully, to conquer the kingdom of Goguryeo in Korea. The Tang were a bit smarter about things and manipulated alliances in order to support their expansion. For example, they allied themselves with the kingdom of Silla in Korea and renewed their attack on Goguryeo as part of an alliance rather than going it alone. However, a more diplomatic form of expansion is still expansion, and the Tang were very expansionist indeed. The Tang pushed out in every direction where they were not blocked by a major geographic obstacle like the Himalayas or the Gobi Desert. The thing about expansionism is that it's never really clear to everyone else, or even sometimes to the expander, where the line in the sand is going to be drawn. Throughout human history, in absence of a clear understanding of whether or not a state is under threat from another state, it's generally been the smartest course to assume that they are. Second, as noted earlier, the Tang were building influence in Korea. Some 1200 years later, the German general Jakob Meckel would refer to Korea as a dagger pointed at the heart of Japan, and that logic was just as true in the 600s as it was in the 1270s, when the Mongols used Korea as a base to attack Japan, and in the 19th century, when the Meiji government feared that a European power could use Korea for the same purpose. Cold, hard geographic fact meant that Korea, as the closest point on the mainland to Japan, was the best possible springboard for an attack on Japan itself. Tang influence there was growing, Goguryeo, pressed on both sides by the Tang and Silla, was collapsing. And a pro-China regime in Silla and the expansion of the Tang together presented a serious threat. As a final reason, naval technology was steadily improving, enabling the Tang to exert their control over the seas and potentially even reach Japan with their troops. Certainly, Japanese troops had been fighting in Korea for centuries, mostly in support of, and I'm sure I'm pronouncing this wrong, Baekje, the third of the three Korean kingdoms and Yamato, Japan's closest ally. It was not too much of a stretch to suggest that now the reverse would be possible, and Korean troops and Chinese troops could be fighting in Japan. Confronting this potential threat from China was a state that, well more united than it had ever been, was still very weak compared to the strong, centralized bureaucracy of China. Yamato was a hodgepodge of various powerful clans who were bound together by nominal recognition of the emperor or empress, who incidentally was not yet called Tenno, the modern word for emperor, but probably went by one of three titles, Yamato Ogimi, or Great King of Yamato, Wa Kokuo, or King of Wa, or the extremely long Amenoshita Shiromeshu Ogimi, Great Lord Who Rules All Under Heaven. The arrangement resembled nothing so much as feudal Europe in terms of its indirect system of rule. The emperor, much like a feudal lord, was dependent on the continued support of the major clans to rule, and the seizure of the state by the soga showed just how tenuous imperial authority could be. The emperor, in other words, could give orders but relied on the major clans to implement them. He did not have a centralized bureaucratic government loyal to him which would carry out his orders. The Chinese, on the other hand, did, which was part of the secret of their ability to control huge chunks of territory. We can't be sure if Sogano Umoko recognized the potential for danger to Yamato, but if he did, he apparently felt unable or unwilling to do anything to address it. Why this was is a bit of an open question, 
but it's likely the answer lies in both the tentative nature of the Soga position, major governmental changes could trigger a revolt, and if they lost control of the emperor they'd lose all their influence, and their own ties to China, which hopefully could be counted on to keep Yamato in the good graces of the Tang. One of Jito's relatives, the imperial prince known as Shotoku, had attempted some governmental reforms designed to centralize the system. We don't know what his motivation was. Indeed, much of Shotoku's life is considered to be legendary. It's a little unclear how much he did or did not do himself. It is possible, though, that he felt it necessary to respond to the threat presented by the rise of the Tang. At any rate, Shotoku never became emperor, let alone developing enough power to challenge the Soga, so his ability to institute reforms was very limited. Thus, time continued to pass, and Tang's strength, as well as the strength of their allies in Silla, continued to grow. By 644, Baekje and Goguryeo were reeling, and a Tang-Silla victory seemed assured, leaving Yamato as the sole remaining target of opportunity in Asia. Sogano Umako's successors, Sogano Emishi and Sogano Iruka, proved no more interested in resisting Chinese influence than Sogano Umako had. A series of Soga-backed emperors were unwilling, for their part, to defy their Soga overlords. As of 644, the empress was a woman named Kogyoku, and she was no more willing to reform the administration than her predecessors had been. There was, however, a growing political band interested in reforming the state to confront this rising external threat. It was led by Kogyoku's eldest son, a prince named Nakano Oe, and his closest friend, a nobleman named Nakatomi no Kamatari. Kamatari's family, the Nakatomi, were a noble clan, but lacked the strength to openly challenge the Soga. If they had, they probably would have met the same fate as the Mononobe, who had tried to fight the Soga militarily and had been destroyed as a result. This reformist group wanted to restructure the government of Yamato on the Chinese model. They wanted to remove the current system of clan loyalties and replace it with a strong centralized bureaucracy. They felt that a centralized state would be able to build up a strong enough military and economic establishment that it would be capable of deterring, or in the worst case, fighting the Chinese. To make that dream a reality, though, they would have to seize power. So, just like another group of revolutionaries, the future leaders of Meiji Japan, some 1200 years later, they began plotting to use political violence to take over the state. Unlike the leaders of the Meiji Restoration, the plotters chose not to challenge the regime militarily by raising an army. This was a practical decision, rather than a humane one. The Meiji leaders had had control of several of the most prosperous domains in the country, and thus they could actually afford a pretty big army. They were also isolated by geography from the center of Japanese power, situated at the far end of the islands, about as far as they could be from the capital of Edo. By contrast, Nakano Oe and Nakatomi no Kamatari lacked the resources to assemble an army, but they were already at the center of power. They both lived at court. Thus, their method would be that old classic, the palace coup. After getting their hooks into a few key officials at the capital, they decided to strike. By the way, the capital was located at the time at Asuka. At this point, to provide one example of how loose the Japanese state was, the location of the capital was not fixed and it moved around all the time, which seriously limited the size and scope of the national government. 
By Japanese reckoning, the coup took place on the 12th day of the 6th month in the year we'd call 645. By the Gregorian calendar, that would be July 10th, 645 CE. The entire court, including Empress Kogyoku, Nakano Oe, and Soga no Iroka, were assembled to hear the latest dispatches from the Korean kingdoms, describing yet more setbacks for Goguryeo and Japan's ally Baekje, and more advances for the Tang-Silla alliance. We don't know for sure, but it's possible this moment was chosen to strike in order to tie the coup to the crisis in Korea. At a prearranged signal from Nakano Oe, the guards, all of whom were in Nakano Oe's pocket, closed the doors to the council room and the prince and his allies drew weapons and attacked the Soga and their supporters. Supposedly, Nakano Oe himself went after Soga no Iroka, wounding him but not killing him. When the Empress Kogyoku demanded that the plotters stop their attack, they did, but several of the palace guards waited until she had left the room to ponder what to do about the coup, and then killed Iruka themselves. When news of the coup got out, the remaining Soga knew that their ticket was punched. They'd never be able to assemble their military forces before the plotters caught them. Instead, the remaining Soga committed suicide by burning their family compound to the ground. Now in control of the state, Nakano Oe and his allies began moving to revamp the system to meet the new challenges from abroad. Empress Kogyoku, tainted by her association with the Soga, retired. Nakano Oe, not wanting to appear as though he had launched a coup to assume power, rather than to address the need for reform, refused the throne, and had his brother take power instead. After his brother's death, Kogyoku would return to power for a short time. During her second reign, she is confusingly referred to as Empress Saime, but she is in fact the same person. After her death, Nakano Oe would finally take power as Emperor Tenji. Nakatomi no Kamatari, meanwhile, was made Nai Daijin, roughly translated Interior Minister. The two men began instituting reforms at a blistering pace, bringing the clans directly under imperial control and establishing a Chinese-style imperial bureaucracy. Rather than the semi-feudal arrangements of clans, nominally loyal to the emperor, the realm was divided into 60-odd provinces ruled by imperial governors, who would be from the aristocratic clans, but who would serve at the emperor's pleasure in the model of a Chinese regional governor. Eventually, this growing bureaucracy would require a settled capital to avoid the disruption and expense of moving it around, resulting in increasingly longer stays at capitals before the establishment of a semi-permanent one at Nara and the final one at Heian, modern Kyoto. One of the largest reforms made was the introduction of a Chinese-style dating system designed to ease the burden of official record-keeping. This was the Nengo system we talked about previously, and the first era of that system was Taika, the Great Change, which is where all these collective reforms get their name from, the Taika Reforms. The Taika Reforms were but the first steps on a broad path of reform of the Japanese government in the Chinese model one which would not be complete until the 750s CE, long after the implementers of the original Taika reforms were dead. The new system is collectively referred to as the Ritsuryo system, a redefined system of legal and administrative codes designed to make Japan more centralized and more stable. The Taika reforms, and more broadly the Ritsuryo system, can be thought of as a general success. Administration was successfully centralized, and Japan was able to maintain its own security 
and even continue to expand over the coming centuries. They faced no serious external challenges, the Tang having decided that costly victories in Korea meant that further expansion would not pay. Nor did they face any serious internal challenges, as the next major internal revolt would not occur until the 900s. The Taika reforms did not come soon enough to salvage Japan's position in Korea. In 660, Japan intervened for the last time to try and prop up Baekje, but its forces were defeated by a combined Silla and Tong fleet. Baekje fell that year, and Goguryeo eight years later. Korea was now unified under the hostile Silla. However, the Chinese Tang dynasty did not attempt further expansion, deterred by the costs of its Korean interventions. The Taika reforms also had one other extremely important outcome. Though in theory they restored power from the Soga to the imperial family, in practice they laid the groundwork for the emperor being relegated to the sidelines once again. Nakatomi no Kamatari, Nakano Oe's compatriot in plotting the overthrow of the Soga, was given a great deal of power to implement reform, and as a reward for his service before his death, he was given a new family name to indicate his distinguished accomplishments, Fujiwara. The Fujiwara would, over the coming decades, become one of the most powerful families in Japan, and would eventually come to so thoroughly dominate the imperial court that within 200 years, they, like the Soga, would become the functional, if not the legal, rulers of the Japanese state. Thus, while the goal of strengthening the administration was complete, the goal of restoring power to the emperor was not. In this case, it's actually a pretty good parallel to the Meiji Restoration. After all, the plotters of 1868 may have said they wanted to put power back in the hands of the emperor, but when it came down to it, they made the decisions, not him. So, what was the legacy of the Taika reforms? Well, you can definitely see the echoes of the Meiji Restoration there. A movement responding to external threats, dedicated to political violence, of a different type to be sure, in order to break down the old social order and institute reform. In both cases, the legitimacy of the imperial family, in the first case the participation of Nakano Oe, and the second of Emperor Meiji, was used to bolster the case for reform, but the position of the emperor himself was sidelined politically by power brokers operating behind the scenes. Both movements also had profound cultural ramifications. Massive borrowing of institutions, first from China and then from the West, necessitated a broader understanding of the cultures being borrowed from. In both cases, this resulted in a massive change to wider society. The Taika reforms were when the Japanese upper classes really became cynified in their behavior, for example dressing in the Chinese style and writing in Chinese rather than Japanese. The same effect is clearly visible in the Meiji Restoration. The historian Kenneth Pyle, who as I've mentioned is the head of my PhD committee, though I agreed with him on this before he was, suggests that the broadly similar paths of the Taika reforms in the Meiji Restoration speak to something broader in the character of Japanese political leadership, a sort of anti-ideological, realist stance towards government, where the ultimate goal is the strengthening of the state, and any means necessary, including massive cultural borrowing, are used to facilitate it. He suggests that Japan's unique position is a relatively weak power surrounded by stronger states, first China, then the Western Great Powers, is what created this tendency. Like I said, I'm inclined to agree. 
which leads us to our last and to my mind most important point. I have in my time often and loudly argued against the idea that there is anything concrete to this nebulous concept of Japanese character, or some kind of innately Japanese worldview. As with any society, Japan contains a huge multitude of viewpoints and opinions, and while the extant culture may give preference to some, it doesn't mean the others don't exist. However, within the broader area of Japan, there are some specific parts of the culture that do have distinct traits to them. Leadership is a great example. Because leaders have a great deal of influence over their successors, they can choose people who agree with them, and thus create a degree of intellectual continuity over time. The continuity can be broken by the total replacement of the leadership, for example via revolution, but only by a certain extent, since to a degree geographic and political facts confronting a country are consistent regardless of who's in charge. However, over and above the geographic nature of Japan's position, the interesting fact to consider is that the response of the Japanese leadership to these changes was so similar because the leadership had never changed at all. Japan has never had a revolution in the vein of France in 1789 or America in 1776. Its leaders have been very consistent throughout history. The imperial family, aristocrats descended from the old clans, and the samurai who, if you'll remember, trace their existence back to the imperial household as well. To be sure, it's not like no new blood has entered the mix at all. For example, plenty of previously unknown families rose to power during the Sengoku. However, the vast majority of the people who led the country have been from this privileged set that can trace itself back to the Taiki reforms and before. The best illustration I can think of is provided by example. As we've said, Nakatomi no Kamatari, Nakano Oe's political ally, was one of the leading thinkers behind the reforms of the Taika period. He founded the Fujiwara, and over time that clan had various subfamilies branch off of it. One of these subbranches was called the Konoe. 1,296 years after the Taika reform began, Japan's government would make the decision to begin drilling its forces to attack the United States at a naval base called Pearl Harbor. The putative leader of the government which made that decision was named Konoe Fumimaro, and he could trace his line all the way back to Nakatomi no Kamatari and the heady days of the Taika reforms. Some say that change only came in 1945, when the Americans forcibly liberalized Japan, or even that it finally came in 1993, when the one-party rule of Japan's Liberal Democratic Party was brought to an end in an election and a socialist coalition swept into power. What those people don't mention, of course, is that one of the prime ministers backed by that socialist coalition, Hosokawa Morihiro, was the grandson of Konoe Fumimaro. Sometimes you have to wonder how much has really changed. That's all for this week. For more on this week's episode or any other episode, or to submit ideas for future episodes, check out the podcast webpage at www.historyofjapan.wordpress.com, our Facebook page at facebook.com slash historyofjapan, or our Twitter page at at japanpod. Thank you very much for listening, and I'll see you next week when we discuss the rise of Japan's Peace Clause, Article 9.